On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. And I always think that every book that we're in is the most amazing book, you know. But they all are, aren't they? <laughs> they all are. <laughs> all right, Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13, which we began last Sunday. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, if you'll follow along now, as I begin reading in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, When you read this, or when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, you will remember from our last study that in verse 1, Paul began an intercessory prayer specifically for his readers as Gentiles that they would understand the the vastness of the love that God had shown for them in Christ. But as soon as he wrote, for this reason, he immediately stopped his prayer and he decided to go over again some of the truths which prompted it in the first place, emphasizing their divine source. So what we have in Uh, in verses 2 to 13, is just one long parenthesis. Last week, we looked at the first seven verses, which deal with the revelation of the mystery to Paul. But he began in verse 1 by saying he was a prisoner of Christ. In other words, he was a prisoner for the sake of the gospel on behalf of the Gentiles. And then in verse 2, elaborating on his statement in verse 1, Paul said, I'm sure you have already heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He was pointing out that his stewardship, that is his ministry, was God's provision for salvation of the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul's stewardship by grace and of God's grace meant grace for the Gentiles. 
In verses 3 to 5, Paul elaborated on his statement in verse 2 about his stewardship from God. In verse 3, Paul explained that his, this stewardship of grace which God had entrusted to him involved the mystery being made known to him by direct revelation from God. And as a result, he said in verse 4, he had insight into the mystery of Christ. God's revelation gave Paul insight into the gospel. He then wrote it down so that others would know what God had revealed to him. And, And so he said, when you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then in verse 5, Paul made clear that the mystery of Christ was not something previously known to the sons of men in other generations. It was unknowable and incomprehensible, a truth hidden from all men. But that God had now revealed it, especially to Paul, who was set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles, but also to his other holy apostles and prophets by means of the Spirit. And then in verse 6, Paul disclosed exactly what the mystery God had revealed is. At the heart of a mystery is the fact that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Gentiles have been made one in Christ with Jewish believers. Together they are members of the new corporate entity, the the body of Christ, the church, and, and they share equally in all the blessings that God has provided in Christ through the gospel. All the blessings of salvation. All Christian blessings. And then in verse 7, which we looked at briefly, Paul spoke of his role as a servant of the mystery. He said in verse 7, if you'll notice, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. This is a transitional verse which brings the discussion concerning the content of the mystery to a conclusion while introducing Paul's role as God's divinely commissioned minister or servant of the gospel. He said that he is a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And being an apostle, a minister of the gospel, was not Paul's career choice. Rather, he says he was made a minister. In other words, he was called and commissioned by Christ according to to grace by the working of God's power. And Paul understood that. And he understood that that this was not only a glorious privilege, but also a divine calling. And the same is true today. And this is why for someone to choose the gospel ministry is an enormous presumption. Because being a pastor, teacher, being a preacher is not something we choose as as if we're choosing a career, but rather it is something to which we are called by God. Charles Spurgeon was famous for recommending that, that no man should preach unless practically forced against his will. You know, man should, should enter the, the gospel ministry only under divine compulsion, the way that, that Paul said, you know, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. John MacArthur writes, Any person in the ministry of the church whom God has not appointed is a usurper. No matter matter how seemingly good his intentions, he can do nothing but harm to the work of the Lord and to the Lord's people. No man should enter the ministry unless he is absolutely certain of the Lord's calling. 
A man should enter the ministry and undertake to preach only, number one, if he is driven by a call from God that he cannot suppress, and number two, that call is confirmed by the approval of the leadership of the church. And we refer to these as the internal call and the external call to ministry, both of which are absolutely necessary. I mean, for example, I mean, when Jesus called Paul, the Lord also appeared to a man named Ananias to confirm Paul's calling and to assist Paul as he prepared to preach. And that is why we have the ordination process today, so that through the church, through the church's leadership, the Holy Spirit can confirm and prepare men who believe they're called to preach. And anyone who doesn't submit to this ordination process uh, gives evidence of the fact that they are not called by God. So Paul didn't describe himself as a hero, but rather as a minister, a, a servant according to the gift of God's grace and the working of God's power. And now this morning, as we come to the second half of this section, Paul explains his ministry of the of the mystery in verses 8 to 12, and then he expresses his concern for his readers in verse 13. So let's look now at verse 8, where Paul begins by saying, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul has just acknowledged his role as a minister of Christ, And that it came to him only by God's grace and power. And, and as he reflected on his past, as he looked back on his past, remembering that, that formerly he was an enemy of God, a persecutor of the Lord Jesus because of his persecution of the church, Paul recognized his utter unworthiness. And he was completely overwhelmed by the privilege that God had given to him, and it humbled him, it greatly humbled him before God, rather than making him proud. And that is why he says, I am the very least of all the saints. And actually, Paul invented the word translated very least. It, is liter it literally means the leaster. Paul invented that word. The leaster. The NIV translates it less than the least. But you can't be anything less than what is already the least of all. And so Paul invents this word leaster to very forcefully and effectively make his point, and he throws out the rules of grammar in doing so. Paul says, I am the very least. I am the leaster. You know, I am less than the least of all the saints, in other words, of all of God's people. Now, why in the world would he say that? I mean, my goodness, he's an apostle, a minister. Why would, why would he say this? Because in his self-righteousness, he had persecuted the church. He had forced some believers to blaspheme the name of Christ. He had been party to their cruel judicial murders. His spiritual pride led him to think that he was doing God a favor by killing sincere, innocent believers. And so, less than the least of the saints is Paul's verdict upon himself. And don't think for one minute that Paul is, 
engaging in some kind of hyperbole. I mean, this is not false humility. Paul is not indulging in hypocrisy nor groveling in in self-deprecation. But rather, this is his honest feelings as he thought about his sinful past. Three times in Paul's letters, he gives a description of himself, and I'm going to read them to you, and I want you to notice the progression. The first is in 1 Corinthians 15, which is believed to be one of Paul's earliest letters. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he's saying, yes, I'm an apostle, but in my mind, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. The next one is in our passage where it says, I am the very least of all the saints, of all the people of God. So the least of the apostles, the least of the people of God. And the third and final description he gives is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, one of his last letters. And there he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Not I was. Of whom I am chief. He uses the present tense. And so this is the progression. This is what Paul's own growth as a Christian looked like. Least of the apostles, least of the saints, the chief of sinners. You say, well, that doesn't sound like spiritual growth and maturity to me. Not at all. Sounds like he's going backwards. But it is spiritual growth and maturity. It indicates how deeply conscious Paul was of his own sinfulness and unworthiness and of Christ's overflowing grace to him. You see, the closer you you draw to God and and the, the more you see his holiness, the more aware you become of the sinfulness of your own heart. We see this in the prophet Isaiah who instantly became aware of his sinfulness when he saw the Lord and said, Woe is me, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. Job, the most righteous man on earth, according to God, repented in dust and ashes when he had had his encounter with God. You see, this has been the the consistent experience of every saint throughout history. The closer they are to God, the more they see and lament their own sinfulness. One commentator from a few hundred years ago points this out often in his writings. For example, he wrote, The more eminently that anyone excels in holiness, the farther he feels himself from perfect righteousness, and the more clearly he perceives that he can trust in nothing but the mercy of God alone. And that is exactly right. You see, as we mature and grow in Christ, we don't come to think more of ourselves, but less, less. Genuine spiritual growth and maturity means a greater awareness of our sin and our own unworthiness before the Holy God.
And so we don't walk around proud of all that we know and all that we've accomplished and, and all that we have done, thinking that, you know, we hardly ever even sin anymore. No, true spiritual growth and maturity, true uh, growing closer to Christ means a greater awareness of our sinfulness and our unworthiness before the Holy God. But it also means a greater joy over the salvation that God has given us by grace and a higher and, and greater appreciation of the gospel of Christ. And that's why we need to hear the gospel every day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. No Christian should ever say they don't need the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just for unbelievers. It doesn't stop at salvation. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Why? It reminds us of our own sinfulness and of the greatness of, of the gospel and of God's grace. We need it every day. And so Paul's estimate of himself as, as the least of all the saints is, is the self-estimate of the true believer. The mature believer who sees Christ in his glory and, and realizes his own sinfulness and uselessness. And you see, loved ones, this is important. First of all, because it's true, what true spiritual growth and maturity looks like, but it's also important because when you know yourself to be the least of all the saints, you will gladly serve the least of these. I mean, grace humbles us, or it should. Grace humbles us and causes us to identify with everyone, including the poor and the weak. No one is beneath us. And the least of all the saints give love, time, and energy to everyone created in God's image. And when they share the gospel with others, they know that it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Oh, how we need the grace of God to be worked down deeply into our hearts as it is here in Paul's heart. And Paul was overwhelmed by the privilege God had given to him, the, the least of all the saints. And he tells us that the purposes of the grace given to him, first his grace, God's grace was given to him, look back at verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles to preach to the Gentiles. This does not mean that he couldn't preach to the Jews because he often did so with the full blessing of God. But the Lord commissioned Paul in a special way to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, he was the apostle to the Gentiles as Peter was to the Jews. But as one man wrote, there can be no doubt that preaching to the Gentiles would have been regarded by some of Paul's contemporaries in the Christian church as the greatest humiliation of their lives. But to Paul, it was the highest honor, a grace and a gift that he welcomed with grateful and adoring heart. And Paul's unique ministry to the Gentiles still occupied his mind and, and filled his heart with wonder. And though some may, may have considered a great humiliation to Paul, it was a high and, and thrilling privilege to preach to the Gentiles. And what did he preach? 
Well, his message was not about himself. His message was, you know, not, it, it didn't consist of heart-stirring stories. It, it was not a therapeutic message designed to excite his listeners. But rather, Paul says, this grace was given to me, notice verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles. What? What is it you preached, Paul? The unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, what a great way to describe the message he was to preach. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And the word translated unsearchable could also be rendered inscrutable or incomprehensible, unfathomable, inexhaustible, incalculable, and infinite. It refers to something impossible to understand on the basis of careful examination or investigation. And the only other time it's used in the New Testament is in Romans 11.33 where Paul says, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's also found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the book of Job, where it refers to the wonders of God's creation and, and provident, his providential work as being unsearchable. And this word suggests the, uh, the picture of a reservoir so deep that, that soundings cannot reach the bottom of it. And so no, no limit can be put on its resources. And the riches of Christ are similar. They're too vast to explore completely and too deep to fathom. They, they are a bottomless deep and so there's only so much that, that we can say. There are depths to Christ that are, always, that, that are and always will be unsearchable. Samuel Rutherford knew what it was to be overwhelmed by the unsearchable depths of Christ. He wrote in one of his letters, Christ is a well of life, but who knoweth how deep it is to the bottom? Well, what are these unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, Christ himself and all the riches he possesses in himself, which he bestows on those who are in him. It includes all his truth and all his blessings, all that he is and has. And we have riches beyond measure in Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in him we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. In Christ, we are blessed with the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, the riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy and great love, the, the riches of his glory, his providing us with all things to enjoy, the riches of his assurance. And so it's no wonder that Paul exclaimed in Colossians 2.10 that, that you, you know, believers, have been filled in him. In other words, in Christ and therefore in no one else, we find every resource, every truth, all power. In other words, all the heavenly resources we would ever need for spiritual life, growth, and maturity. Everything we need is in Christ. And so think of it. To know Jesus is to know God. To look upon Christ's character is to know the character of God. 
To know Jesus and trust Him, to walk in fellowship with Him through this life and to belong to Him for all eternity as a bride to her groom. I mean, that, that is the great unfathomable treasure that is ours in Christ. I mean, to belong to Jesus is to be a sheep tended by the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. To follow Jesus is to walk in the light, for He is the light of the world. To come to Him is to find rest for our souls, to receive living water welling up into eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. I mean, this is our salvation, the unsearchable riches that are ours in Christ. And in addition to Christ Himself, These unsearchable riches also include all the blessings of salvation he gives to those who come to him in faith. I mean, these blessings are the things Paul has been teaching us in chapters 1 and 2. That God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, and Paul has spelled them out. God chose us in Christ to be holy. He predestined us for adoption as sons, accepted us into his own family in the Beloved. Through the shedding of Christ's blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, and we believe we were sealed by the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. And God made us alive together with Christ, and so to trust in Christ is to experience a spiritual resurrection. It is to be saved by grace through faith, to be God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God himself prepared beforehand for you. It's to be a born-again member of the new humanity in Christ who gives us peace with God and and the peace of God in our lives. It's to be a holy temple, a, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul calls all these riches unsearchable. Not because they're unknowable, but rather because we will never exhaust them. We'll never plumb the depths of the riches of Christ. In fact, we'll spend eternity searching them out. We'll spend eternity discovering in new ways and and even greater intensity the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so as one man said, long after our careers are over and the money we stockpiled has been spent by others, we will still be searching out the riches of Christ. This is the highest calling for which every believer was created and redeemed. It will be the work of eternity. It is the primary work of our present lives. God chose Paul to be a minister of the gospel and tasked him with two important missions. Number one, to preach the the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And then secondly, to bring to light the formerly hidden mystery of the church. This grace was given to Paul to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, notice verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The Greek word translated here as to bring to light means to make plain, to reveal, to enlighten, to instruct. It means to cause something to be fully known by revealing clearly and and in some detail. So Paul says he is to make known to everyone or to make all see. And of course, he, he, he means all believers because unsaved people cannot understand spiritual truth. 
And so he's to make known to all believers, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, all who put their faith in Christ by responding to the message of the good news, what is the plan of the mystery? Well, what is the plan of the mystery? What is that? Well, it goes back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and in chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, how God created one new man, one new entity, one body, the church, into which both believing Jews and believing Gentiles are incorporated and made one in Christ. And he has done so on the basis of the blood of Christ, not on the basis of one's ethnicity or good works. And Paul says this mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. From ages past, God's plan to form one new body of believers in Christ had been hidden. I mean, it was unknown and unknowable in previous generations. But that doesn't mean it was an afterthought. Because it was hidden in God, that is, in his mind and and purpose all the time. It had been planned by him, the creator from eternity. I mean, before the foundation of the world, he chose a people for himself in Christ and predestined them to be his children. He had prepared this plan before the creation and put it into operation at just the right time through the first coming of Christ, the birth of the church, and now Paul's ministry to the Gentiles along with the ministry of the other apostles. And so we see here in this verse the care the Holy Spirit takes to impress upon us the fact that the church is something new, that the church is unique, it is is unprecedented. It was not known before to anyone but God. This mystery was hidden in God who created all things. He created the material universe, he created the ages, and he created the church. And as the sovereign creator, God will ensure that his once hidden plan is carried out according to his perfect design. And so Paul is saying, in effect, I'm not only called to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ, but I am also called to make clear to all who believe God's plan for believing Jews and Gentiles to be incorporated on equal terms into one single entity, the body of Christ, the church, and to explain the centrality and the importance of the church in God's plan of redemption. And now in verses 10 to 11, Paul explains the purpose of the reason for this. Notice, it is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In this verse, Paul tells us that that the church has implications that reach throughout heaven and, and, in fact, the entire spiritual realm. He says that the goal of his preaching and enlightening is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. He describes God's wisdom here as manifold. And this word manifold is a term that occurs only here in the Bible and literally means many colored. It was used to describe everything from the intricate and colorful design of flowers to embroidered cloth to woven carpets and and even crowns with their exquisite jewels. 
It could be rendered richly diversified, multifaceted, highly variegated, infinite diversity. I mean, it speaks of being varied beyond measure and, and in a way which surpasses all previous knowledge thereof. And it, it suggests both beauty and diversity. And in the present context, this many-colored, variegated wisdom has particular reference to God's infinite, varied ways of working, or ways in which he worked to bring about a multiracial, multicultural, diverse, beautiful community of believers united as fellow members in the body of Christ. And there is no other human co-op like it in the world. And each member of the body of Christ manifests a different aspect of God's image. And together, believers form a, a perfect blend of harmony and, and diversity. And, and the many features, forms, and, and colors of, of fellowship in the church reflect this manifold wisdom of God. And make no mistake about it, it is through the church, the church that this manifold wisdom of God has been made known. Through the church, not nature, no other angels, nor the animal kingdom, but through the church. It is through the very existence of this new multiracial, uh, multiracial, transcultural community of believers uh, which, who are co-heirs of the promises that God makes his wisdom known. No other organization on earth, neither government, nor educational institutions, nor civic clubs, can accomplish this purpose. It is only through the church. And notice to whom the manifold wisdom of God through the church is made known. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, speaking about the angels. And angels are also spoken of in such terms in Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, and, and then in Ephesians 6, 12, Paul uses familiar or similar words to regard in regard to fallen angels. Now, some scholars think this refers only to the holy angels. Some think it refers only to the fallen angels, and some to both. Uh, I believe it probably refers to both. But most of us probably don't don't think about angels very often. But Paul brings them into the center of God's eternal purpose. I mean, one reason God has brought the church into being is for the purpose of manifesting his great wisdom before the angels, both holy and unholy. And the apostle Peter expressed this same truth when he wrote, it was revealed to them, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says, things into which angels long to look. No doubt they're referring to holy angels. You see, the angels are outside the, uh, or they're outsiders to the drama of sin and redemption. But they love to watch. They love to watch the great work of God's salvation unfold in history and in, and in the lives of the saints. I mean, just imagine them trying to understand God's love and grace to such rebellious beings. 
all so that they could become the children of God. And angels will never fully understand our salvation because they will never be recipients of God's saving grace. But they wonder what it's like to experience the grace and the glory of salvation and and God's forgiveness from sin. And so they're continually looking with great interest into salvation's greatness, watching with fascination as they see Gentiles and Jews made one in Christ and and being incorporated into the church as equals. And they have a, a holy curiosity to understand the grace they'll never experience. They long to look further into it so that they might praise and glorify God even more. And it's through the church that God makes his plan known to them and to the fallen angels as well. To the fallen angels, the church, which exists because of Christ's triumph at the cross, to the fallen angels, this displays God's wisdom and reminds them of their impending doom. The fallen angels thought that they had triumphed at the cross. But God displayed his wisdom by using the very means of the cross to gain ultimate and final victory. One commentator has provided a a helpful and an eloquent explanation of God's unfolding plan of salvation as a display of his wisdom to the fallen angels. This is what he wrote. The hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God and believed that they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about his crucifixion. But unwittingly, they had been mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means he had devised for the accomplishment of his plan. And so it is here declared that the hostile powers, after their brief apparent triumph, had now become aware of a divine wisdom they had never dreamed of. They saw the church arising as the result of Christ's death and giving effect to what they could now perceive to have been the hidden purpose of God. So the very existence of the church demonstrates to the hostile powers that they are in fact powerless to stop the progress of the gospel to the Gentiles and consequently to destroy the church, the body of Christ, which they thought that they had already destroyed on the cross. And so the purpose for which Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles and enlightened believers as to the mystery of the church is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And as the church, We show this wisdom of God to the principalities and powers by being the church that God created. And the church is to demonstrate to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that God has been wise in sending his son to die that we might have hope and be unified in one body, the church. But what happens to the display of God's wisdom when the church is internally divided and or externally segregated.
Well, when we fail to live in hope and to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we send the signal through the galaxies that God's purpose is failing. He was not wise. In fact, he was foolish. You see, Paul wants us to understand the importance of the church and God's eternal plan so that we will give it the proper priority in our lives. He wants us to understand what a great privilege it is that God has chosen us to be the agents of carrying out his eternal purpose through the church. The church is not just a nice place to drop in on Sundays if you're not doing anything more interesting. The church is God's vehicle for making known his manifold wisdom, not only on earth, but also to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was always a part of God's eternal plan and purpose. It was his plan from the beginning. Notice verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the mystery of the church, hidden in the past but now revealed, and the manner in which the church exhibits the the manifold wisdom of God was God's plan from the very beginning. And this is what the cross was all about. The gospel of Christ is not God's plan B. God had only one plan from the beginning, and this plan was worked out in the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Christ. The whole program centered in Christ and has been accomplished, Paul tells us, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants us to understand that this message of the gospel has eternal roots. Before the events of Genesis 1-1 put uh, put the universe of time and space in motion, God had planned to bring about salvation and unity through Christ in the church. This was in his mind in ages past, in eternity past. The Father decreed it, the Son implemented it, and the Spirit empowered it. And the triune God purposed before time began to proclaim this message of Jesus Christ through the church. And so although we can date the coming of Christ, his death and and resurrection in the first century, the message of the church has eternal roots in the purpose and plan of God. And as a result of God's plan of salvation for all who believe, there is freedom of access to the Father. I mean, earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul assured his readers that through Christ, Jewish and Gentile believers alike have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, here in chapter 3, verse 12, he states this glorious truth again with a slightly different nuance. Notice verse 12, he says, in whom, that is, in Christ, so in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. But why did did Paul repeat this? Because he simply wanted to emphasize the astonishing truth that in Christ Jesus our Lord, all believers have unrestricted, unhindered access to God with boldness and confidence through our faith in him. 
but it is only in Christ and through our faith in Christ that we have access to the Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Of all the blessings of Christian salvation, none is greater than this, that we have access to God in prayer. I mean, think of it. Every person who comes to Christ in faith can come before God at any time with boldness and access, with confidence. Or it's probably better this way, with boldness and confident access. And this word boldness, it's not the idea of presumptuousness or or arrogance. You know, it doesn't mean we can come flippantly or irreverently. This word boldness in, in ancient Greek society had to do with freedom of speech. And the basic idea in this context is that we now have access to speak to the Father freely, openly, and without any constraint. The word access speaks of approach to God. It it means that that you have the privilege of admission. But the idea of access is, is far more than that God is simply available to us. It also speaks of nearness with God. Because of his kindness, love, and mercy, coupled with the reconciliation that's taken place by the blood of Christ, believers can experience a nearness, a closeness to God. And as part of this relationship, this close relationship, God's people should never feel any restraint in approaching God in prayer and, and, and worship. And we can pray at any time with no fear of being turned away. And the word confidence suggests assurance of acceptance. So believers can approach God with full confidence, with with no fear of accusation or rejection. I mean, God delights to see his children because we're forgiven in Christ and and clothed in in his perfect righteousness. And so we should never fear uh, to draw near to God because through Jesus Christ we have access. And we have the confident assurance of of a welcome. And we have the confident assurance of a hearing before a wise and a loving Father who gives wise and loving answers. And so Paul says every person who comes to Christ in faith can enter into God's presence at any time with an honest, open heart, without fear of being rejected. And so this means if you wake up at 1.05 in the morning in a cold sweat because of some serious family crisis, the Father is there. And you can pour out your needs before Him. And he is ready to listen to your pleas, to, to ease your burdens, and, and to give you peace. And you, So you can tell him all your troubles, all your sorrows and pain, and, and ask him to help you in, in all of your needs. Because as the old song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. And he is a compassionate, tender, 
loving Father who is concerned and who is able to bring all the power of his omnipotence to bear on the problems and difficulties of our lives. What a glorious truth that if you're a Christian, and again, only if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you can pray anytime, anywhere. You can draw near to the throne of grace and there find help in your time of need. And we can seek God in prayer through Christ by the Spirit, and we can be confident that He hears us, that He is for us, that He is with us, and that He answers prayer. But we must always remember He answers prayer according to His will and in His time light, because He knows best. So we should never fear to draw near to God in prayer because through Jesus Christ we have access. We have sweet access to God the Father through Christ the Savior. And if we're in Christ, absolutely nothing, nothing is able to stand in the way of our access to God. And so the long parentheses begun at verse 2 comes to an end. And in verse 13, we see Paul's concern for his readers. Notice, he says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And so here we see the loving pastoral heart of Paul. And he's the one in prison. Yet he wants to set the Ephesians' mind at ease. He tells his readers that, that they shouldn't lose heart, or it means to be discouraged. You know, don't be discouraged, he's saying, by my situation, by my imprisonment. Apparently, many of the believers were grieved over Paul's extended imprisonment, which by this time uh, could have been as long as five years. And they were also grieved over the almost continual suffering that Paul endured because of his ministry. And they, they may have been wondering if the work of, of, of evangelizing was worthwhile in, in light of all of the serious risks involved. They may have also wondered whether the work was going to stop because Paul was, was prevented from his normal, normal duty. They didn't understand that the word of God is not chained. But it's easy to understand how those who knew Paul's situation could lose heart. Because his calling and mission certainly appeared to have been brought to a standstill. But it wasn't, and Paul understood that, and he wants them to know that that his suffering had a divine purpose. It's for you, he said. And he said to the Colossians in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I mean, Paul rejoiced to be used by God, even at, at great personal cost. Because he knew that his suffering was so that the Ephesians might have the gospel message and be reconciled to God. 
And without his willingness to suffer all the miseries he experienced for the sake of the gospel, there would have been no church in Ephesus or anywhere else in the Roman province of Asia for that matter. And if Paul had not suffered imprisonment, this letter might might never have been written. And we would have been deprived of its incredible message. But we have the amazing truths of, of, of the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And their message to the body of Christ, all because of Paul's suffering. He rejoiced in his suffering because he knew his suffering was part of God's plan and he recognized the value and and purposes of his suffering for righteous reasons. His suffering brought good to the church. It, It would be a benefit to his readers and it would bring glory to God. And so he concludes this section by saying, look, I'm asking you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you because it's for your glory. Which probably refers to their eternal life or salvation. I mean, although Paul's ministry had resulted in suffering for him, it would result in salvation for the Ephesian church that they too as Gentiles might be for the praise of his glory, God's glory. And as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so as we look back on, on this section, verses 1 to 13, we see very clearly that Paul's preaching consisted of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ or the gospel and the mystery of the church. In short, according to verse 8, Paul's message was Christ. According to verse 9, it was the church. The first focus of Paul's preaching was to preach Christ to the Gentiles. His next focus was to inform all believers of the centrality and importance of the church. You see, he wanted his readers to have a, a high view of the church and to recognize and to revere the centrality of the church in God's eternal plan. And one commentator has suggested that this includes three great facts, and let me share with you what he said. First, he said, the church is central to history. The open secret is that the church, the new humanity, a multiracial, multinational third race, will rule in the universe along with Christ and the angels, and that amidst the swirling tides of Marxism, revived militant Islam, and virulent materialism, only the church will survive history. Second, the church is central to the gospel. Ephesians teaches that the complete gospel involves both the preaching of Christ and the mystery of the church. Christ died and rose from the dead not only to save us, but to create a single new humanity. That means that the local manifestation of the church, the church we attend, is very important. It is the third race watched by the world and by angels. When it preaches Christ and lives as the church, souls are drawn to Christ, the head. And third, he said, the church is central to Christian living. 
The text ends with Paul alluding to his suffering. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Paul was willing to pay any price to see the church go forward. As an apostle, he saw his sufferings as the church's glory. And so in in considering all of these things, we would have to say that bottom line, the church is not an option for believers, nor is supporting it an option. I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also don't have to go home to be married. However, if you don't go home very often, the basis of your relationship uh, is on real shaky ground, right? Attendance and participation in your local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and the church. And of course, as we all know, the church on earth is imperfect. That's because it's filled with imperfect pastors and imperfect people. Nevertheless, we must be committed to the local manifestation of of the church. We must be committed to regular worship and and should worship with all that we have. Why would you come and worship half-heartedly? Why bother? We should worship with all that we have. I'm not saying there aren't those days when you have a heavy heart, or maybe perhaps you're not feeling well, or, or you're struggling with something that, that our, our worship you know, isn't with all we have. That's understandable but you came to the right place in those situations. I'm talking about someone who comes in without a heart prepared to worship, sits back, uh, enjoys the flight, and then leaves as soon as they can because they really have no interest in what's being said. We're to worship with all that we have. I mean, as part of the new humanity, the body of Christ, we should be committed to our church's fellowship as well. Because if we only attend worship, we're robbing the church and ourselves and Christ. You know, we we must be involved in, in small groups and home fellowships. Because it's there that we interact and and minister to others and are able to practice the one another's that we learned about. And many talked about. But we can't just learn about it and talk about it. We actually have to do it. Also, since Christ and his church has the only answer for the world, we must be involved in in sharing both. When was the last time you invited someone to church? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And if you, you know, struggle at sharing the gospel, when was the last time you simply handed them a gospel tract? I mean, evangelism is not an option. I mean, we must reach out to those who, who are not like us. I mean, we must reach out to those all around us who are dying uh, daily, physically, dying daily, and, and on their way to an eternal hell, 
For after they've been there a million ages, not years, but a million ages, they'll never be any closer to getting out than the day they went in. Evangelism is not an option. We should, we should be inviting people to come to church to hear the preaching of the word and, and sharing of the gospel with those around us. We should be sharing with them the unsearchable riches of Christ. But the problem with so many Christians today is that they don't have the big picture. They just don't understand the big picture. They don't understand that the church is at the the very center of how God wants to change our lives and the world. They don't understand that it is God's eternal uh, purpose to display his manifold wisdom through the church. And therefore, as members of the body of Christ and a local of the body of Christ, the church universal, and a member of the, of the church local. And it's imperative that we respond by committing ourselves to it and praying for God to use it mightily. Why? For his sake and for his glory. And for the salvation of the lost and the building up of the body of Christ. We should be willing to endure hardship to see it all, see it become all that God wants it to be. May God work these things in all of our hearts. May He work these things in all of our hearts to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you It's your love that makes me see